0: I didn't mention earlier uh, Genesis 2, Genesis 2, uh, 15 is the sermon passage. We're actually going to look at verses 5 through 15 together. You could turn there. And as you're turning, I'll mention too, if you don't have a Bible, there's one provided for you there in the seat in front of you. If you look underneath there, you see some smaller black hardback books. Those are the Bibles, the uh, brown ones are the hymnals. But... um, You'll find this, you know, right at the, uh, in the opening pages, Genesis chapter 2. As you're turning there, I'll just uh, kind of call to our minds something that probably many of us are familiar with a, a, on a certain level. We've seen pictures of, heard stories of the rebuilding of a city. Um, and so you might think of one that's been destroyed by war or by fire maybe, one of those fires that just you know, sort of burned the sort of the guts of a whole city. Or uh, after World War II, some of the pictures of cities in Germany you may have seen, just utterly destroyed. If we were able to see pictures of places in Ukraine, we would see them right now. Rebuilding a city like that, or even you've maybe heard stories or seen pictures of a city that's being rebuilt after a regrettable decision that um, people have made. I think of uh, the city of Utrecht, I think is, I don't, that's probably not how you pronounce it, but anyway, in in the Netherlands. um, Think of that one in particular where when that city was first built in the 1100s, you know, there was a canal that ran all around the city as there is in much of the Netherlands. And in 1972... They decided to fill the canal in the city center with concrete and build a highway. I, just 50 years later, it sounds like a bad idea, doesn't it? <laughs> um, they, they, they built a highway. They decided, of course, the, you know the world was changing, the automobile was changing the way life was lived and so forth. So they built a highway through the city rather than uh, in, in place of the canal. And then some decades later, they decided indeed that was a bad idea. And um, their their city was filled with vehicles and noise and exhaust fumes. And uh, the, the, the the city had been built for cars rather than for people, they would say. And they wanted to flip that around and rebuild their city, design it for people rather than for cars. And so they actually over a period of decades, I suppose, uh, voted to make that change and, and brought the canal back. And lots of bicycles, it's really amazing if you see some of the way uh, that city and others in the Netherlands in particular have been designed for, uh, to accommodate bicycle and pedestrian traffic and that sort of thing in a way that makes the city very livable. But the, but the point is, it was they were rebuilding the city in that case, because of a regrettable decision they had made themselves um, some years earlier. But in either case, whether, whether it's destroyed by war, by fire, or whether it's just messed up because of decisions that people made, rebuilding the city requires consulting the blueprints, as it were. The, the, the master plan of what how the city was designed to be. And maybe maybe involves consulting old photographs to see what did it look like in the good old days. I I take the time to offer that extended metaphor because I think it's a good metaphor for the fallen world that we live in and our place in that world as the people of God. You might say we live among the ruins of the fall. And part of our task as God's people is to participate in the rebuilding of the city. Of course, in this analogy, the war is still going on. (laughs) And we we continue to wreck the things, the very things that we've rebuilt and, and that sort of thing. But we participate with God in rebuilding the ruins, the consequence of sin. And in some cases, rebuilding... After our own regrettable decisions, we go through them, uh, cycles uh, of of living, um, of following more closely after God and other cycles of running from him as fast as we can, of rejecting his way of doing things. We we, uh, experience the consequence of that decision and then hopefully by his grace come back to doing things his way again, consulting the blueprint, as it were, and rebuilding the way he had designed it. There's a sense in which this series, It Is Good, is about that very task. It is looking back in the first two chapters of Genesis at the blueprint. When God created a good city, how did he describe it? What did it look like? And through the consequence of our own sin and our own bad decisions, when we wreck that, we've always got a blueprint to look back to to see how to rebuild. And so this particular message this morning is, um, as a part of that series and looking back at God's blueprint, we're interested in what his original design was for work and productivity. And so I've just titled this sermon this morning, Good Work. Good Work. We're looking at Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 through 15. I'm going to ask you if you'll stand for the reading of his word and attentiveness to his voice in it. Hear the word of the Lord. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, And there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. The Delium and Onyx Stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father we thank you now as always for your true and living word we open it with the expectation that you have something to say to us in it something that would open our eyes to truths we haven't seen before open our hearts and minds to understand things we haven't understood before and move us to obey in ways perhaps we've never obeyed before. You know what's on our minds and hearts and what confronts us in our lives and what we bring with us today. And so we ask, Lord, that you would speak, O oh Lord, your word by your spirit, through your servant to your people for your glory. We know it's for our good always. Lord, but you've moved me out of the way and used my voice as your instrument today. For Christ's sake, amen. And you may be seated. I, I wanted to read that whole sort of background and context here leading up to verse 15 today, um, partly because Genesis 1 and 2 together really show us creation from two viewpoints, you might say. Um, so the first one is kind of a zoomed out view of the whole world when we see the creation of the heavens and the earth and, and, uh, and, and, and how that unfolded in those days of creation we read about earlier. It was kind of a zoomed out view. And then, uh, beginning in verse 4, I suppose verse 4 of chapter 2 is kind of the pivotal verse uh, where it turns and then kind of zooms in to take a closer view of the creation of man. So uh, what we just read in chapter two is not what happens next um, after day seven of creation. It really is an elaboration of what happened when he created man. It kind of zooms in for us. And And it gives us context Um, To what we read here today about the subject of work and productivity, but also what we'll read and consider in some other messages as we go along. But the rest of chapter 2 describes the creation of man. And one of the things it says is that God created man for the purpose of working. And so my purpose today is to help us in some small measure recover a biblical vision for work and productivity. It is, again, looking, looking back at the blueprint and seeing what can we learn from that and apply in uh, the life that we live in, indeed, this fallen world. I keep, I, I keep wanting to come back to this, just acknowledging to you, I know we don't live in Genesis chapter one and two where all things are good. They are certainly not. But as God's people redeemed and moving toward uh, the restoration of all things, that is the vision we have for the world and again what we are laboring for. So I want to do that today, just recovering a biblical vision for work and productivity. Next week will be part two of this message where we'll, we'll get a little bit more practical in terms of, okay, how do you actually do that in, in the workplace or whatever station of life you're in, whatever a day holds or a week holds for you, how do you actually walk that out? Because I do, I do need to mention kind of at the outset of this, acknowledging um, you know, this is, there's a way in which this is encompassing to everybody. But there are, when we talk about work and productivity, there are some people who are thinking, that doesn't apply to me. There may be people who are disabled and don't work for that reason. There may be people who are unable to work for, for other reasons. Or there may be people who are retired. May, there may be. There may be some here who are retired. And... uh <laughs> So, uh, again, I mean, I sort of want to acknowledge that in the first place. But even what I'm going to say, even for those that are retired, um, there is work for you to do. There are ways in which you can be productive and that you can continue to contribute. And, and many of you know that because many of you do it right here. Uh, many of you have very busy schedules, maybe more uh, busier in retirement than you were before retirement, I've heard some people say that. But again, I just acknowledge that um, at the outset. So I, w- I want to just unpack that a little bit. Um, uh, what do we learn here about a sort of a biblical view of, a biblical vision for work and productivity? And the first thing I would say is that work and productivity are part of God's good design for mankind. Okay, work And productivity are part of God's good design for mankind. Work, from a biblical viewpoint, is not just a necessary evil. It's not punishment. You know, we see here that work was given to man before the fall. Okay? It was given to man before the fall. It was after the fall that work became toilsome. If you were to glance over at chapter uh, three, verses 17 through 19, you'll, you'll see, he says, um, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you that you shall not eat. He says, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat thorns and thistles, it shall bring. And then verse 19, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Work was given to man to do before the fall. It became hard after the fall. Amen, right? (laughs) Somebody knows something about sweat and pain in your work, right? But it isn't inherently bad. And in fact, the work itself wasn't even cursed. It's just a, it's just a statement that the world following that sin is thoroughly uh, affected by sin. Everything is um, stained. Everything is a bit warped or in some state of disrepair. Not destroyed altogether altogether not altogether ruined. It's not to the point where we can't see uh, some degree of the beauty of God's design in it. But it is fallen and imperfect. And so the, the, the we now, after the fall, we want the ground to produce fruit and the ground wants to produce thorns and thistles. And it will take extra labor for us to do that. And yet, work itself is inherently good. Work itself is part of God's good design for us. And part of recovering this this kind of vision um, of work involves understanding something I've sort of brushed uh, a, a statement I've brushed over or brushed up against a couple of times as we've gone through here, but that is that God's good, good, creation had potential that would only be realized through human effort. God's good creation. It wasn't, it wasn't um, insufficient anyway. It wasn't broken. Just the way that he designed it, uh, the world world had potential that would only be realized through human effort. We actually saw that in verse five. I'm not going to go back and read the three or so verses um, that elaborate this point, but it basically says in verse five that there was a time when there were no plants of the field because it hadn't rained and there was no man to work the ground. That there was a time where the the earth had potential to produce more than it was producing just by itself. That the way God designed it was for some of that potential to be drawn out through the efforts of man. Cultivating. And again, that's to say, we're not designed simply to be actively toiling, but to be productive. That's why I said this the, really the topic of this is about work and productivity because even if you're even if you are retired and even if you don't work in exchange for pay anymore um, there are ways in which you can be productive and should be productive. Some of you have probably found you don't have to be retired to find this out. You can find that being lazy for too long is depressing right? It's, it's unhealthy. It's just not good for us. It's one of the things uh, we discovered during COVID that was proved to us in really a, an awful way that, that locking down and keeping people at home and out of work had really uh, bad consequences in the way of mental health. Right? And again, I would say, I mean, if we understand, if we have sort of a biblical view of this, that wouldn't be surprising necessarily. We know that it's good for us to work and to be productive, and it's unhealthy for us not to. We're not just to be actively toiling. We're to be productive. By contrast, you might uh, think of the, the Greek myth about Sisyphus, and uh, some of you have heard that story, and maybe others Sisyphus was one of these mythological characters who was punished in the underworld by Hades. He had cheated death twice. And when he finally died, Hades decided to punish him for cheating death. And his punishment was to roll a huge boulder up a hill only for it to roll back down. And then when it got back down, he had to roll it up the hill again. And it rolled down again. And that was his punishment forever, was to to do this terribly difficult task that served absolutely no purpose and accomplished nothing. That sounds like real punishment, doesn't it? And so what, what the, what, what, what the Bible gives us is a very different, 180 degree different view of work. That it is not merely toilsome and that it is not purposeless. But that we uh, have something to rejoice in, in the work, we have something to contribute through our work. And um, I want to sort of move on to that in looking at four aspects of God's good work assignment. I think the this, this slide just says four aspects of, good, of a good work. But when we read this verse 15, we see two operative words, really, about work. And one is work, and the other is keep. You may see something slightly different in the translation that you're looking at in front of you. But the word work and keep. And the word for work is a Hebrew word. Um, and it, like other Hebrew words, you'll, you'll see it take different, slightly different forms, uh, depending on how it's being used. But uh, the word avad, avda, or avoda. And that word that's translated here, work. Elsewhere in the Bible is used to mean worship and service. And this is a a little bit of a provocative thought here, that the same Hebrew word can mean work, worship, and service. And there's an error we could make in uh, demanding that... um, any given meaning of a word like that uh, uh, apply you know, to every scenario, every situation or whatever. But there's something really quite instructive about this because God created man in the beginning with a purpose. We've been talking about that the last couple of weeks. And all of it, all of it had meaning. And all of it he did, all of his existence was underneath the lordship of the creator. And so everything he did, there was no distinction there between what was worship and what was work. It was all done as unto the Lord for for his purposes. So there's a sense in which that's God's intention, that our work be labor, that our work done as unto the Lord is worship, and that it is service. That, that uh, obviously the connotation here in verse 15 is that it is work, right? It's labor. That's what he's given man to do, the, the, the task of laboring in the garden um, to produce fruit. But there is uh, you know, a number of places where, as I said, this same word is translated as worship. In fact, even in Psalm one hundred. That I read um, as a call to worship. Serve the Lord with gladness. It uses, of course, that translates it as serve or service. It's obviously a call to worship. And it's the same word there. There are other uh, scriptures that would translate it that same way. Or then, service. Think about Joshua 24 15, this uh, verse that we're many of us are very familiar with. It's, if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The same word here, Avodah. And I really, really believe when he, when, when he created Adam, for the purpose of working, um, tending, and even for the purpose of being fruitful and multiplying, filling the earth and subduing it and exercising dominion over it that would come over generations. That in so doing, uh, he intends for man's, all of man's work, all of man's life really to be service to God, and worship to God. It is all his. And so uh, the reality for you and me is, well, it's not just me and Eve in the garden. (laughs) We now live in a world populated by billions of people, right, and in a very, uh, much of it very advanced or industrialized, And so our good work um, not only is service to God, like everything that we do is his people. Our lives are not our own, right? He's bought us with a price. Everything we are and have belonged to him, and it's all submitted to his service. But not only do we just serve him, but our work, in a sense, also serves other people. And if you can begin to get your mind around these, again, sort of different aspects of work, it can be really life-changing in the way you experience work and the the sense of fulfillment you can find even from work that you have found in the past to be unfulfilling. But here's what I mean um, when I say our work serves other people as well. You know, I could, not, I could not possibly provide adequately for all of my own needs, just myself. I, that's true of most of us. Uh, it's certainly true of me. If I lived by myself in the wilderness, I wouldn't live long, probably, is what I'm saying. But, 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 but nobody could really provide adequately for all of the food, water, shelter... Clothing, making our own clothing. We couldn't provide our own health care. We couldn't provide for our own protection. You can't sleep at night and keep watch at night at the same time. You understand that? And those are just really basic needs. The point is we, we can't do solely by ourselves for ourselves everything that we need. My life is better because other people do what I cannot do for myself. And the way God's intended it to be is other people's lives are better because of what I do that they can't do. And any sort, of, any sort of work that we do in exchange for pay, and I say in exchange for pay just because in a free market, if somebody's willing to pay you for it, it means that it has value to somebody. So any work done, um, you know, faithfully, diligently, ethically, and so forth, there is a contribution that that makes to other people. The world is better because of the work that any of us does. It's service, not only to God, but to other people. And again, I'm going to really elaborate on that next week. So I'll 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 leave that for now. But that's really kind of where the rubber meets the road is in how to when I go to work, how do I do my work in a way um, that I know brings me a new sense of joy and fulfillment because I understand I'm not only laboring, but I'm worshiping God, I'm serving Him and others as well, and then also that I'm stewarding. That's the fourth aspect of work here as He reveals it. That this word. To keep, he says there are two things work and keep. And the word work or word keep means to keep or guard or watch over. It's the same word that we would read repeatedly in um, Psalm 121, for example. So, where he's talking about God is my keeper, your keeper. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper; He will keep your life. Do you remember some of those phrases from Psalm one twenty one? It's that—that's the word there used. In other words, there's a sense of guarding, protecting, taking care of. And part of the duty that man has been given in being made for the purpose of work is to steward is to take care of, is to be a custodian of whatever little domain he's given. Again, in Adam's case, it's the garden. In our case, um, it's some little slice of the world. As I've mentioned over the last couple of weeks, that Abraham Kuyper quote, about there's not one square inch of creation over which Christ, who is Lord, does not say, mine. And so whatever number of little square inches we've been given to exercise dominion over, we, we are called to steward that. There is something we're supposed to take care of. And this is a, this is a really helpful and necessary counterbalance sometimes to when we think our, our work and the, the talent that we have the effort that we apply to it, but that our work um, can yield, you know, great riches and wealth, opportunity for ourselves and so forth. Um, what we what we always have to be mindful of is that as God's people, we are taking care of what's His, not simply claiming it as ours. Okay, we're stewards. We work in our labor, we labor in our work, I should say. We worship through our work. We serve through our work. We steward through our work. And just to point us a little bit at what lies ahead, again, part of the pertinence of that is that the the culture offers us, the the culture kind of has a counter-proposal. There's always something besides God's way that the culture would offer us. And at least uh, two counter-proposals would be, One that works as a mean to an end and that end is making a lot of money, as much as you can accumulate and kind of living for retirement. So I'm uh, I'm just gonna work and amass all that I can looking forward to the day that I'll retire. It's just a means to an end to a, a comfortable life later. At the other end of a continuum would perhaps be that work is just a necessary evil to provide for, you know, basic needs. And so I'm going to enjoy the pleasures of life as much as I can and work as little as I can. And there are people who choose that route too, right? And in fact, what I would say to you is if we were to look at uh, the timeline over the last few generations, we would see among baby boomers, um, a, a, a real, uh, I can't think of the adjective that would, would describe it, but a, a strong work ethic. A sense of, of, uh, of really working hard, again of m- making a fair amount of money um, and so forth, living to work would be more the inclin- inclination of boomers. Gen Xers my generation was similar Um, and some of us, some of them, made a whole lot of money. Uh, (laughs) Um, And that is, uh, sociologists would suggest maybe that is shifting some now among younger generations, looking at previous generations and going, you know, it doesn't look like that was worth it to me. There's living to work living for the sake of accumulating a lot of money that you might enjoy one day when you retire if you don't die before you retire. Like, that doesn't seem like the way to live for me. I'm going to go the other route and work as little as I can and enjoy as much as I can. And we can't generalize about, uh, nothing that I've said is true about all baby boomers or all Gen Xers or all, you know, millennials or Gen Zers, but it's just to say we we, we see the cultural influence in either direction that would that would entice us um, to work as a means to an end for a comfortable life one day many years from now, or at the other end to work just as little as we can and manage to enjoy as much as we can. The Bible offers us another alternative. The biblical vision, God's good design for work, Um, would have us worship through our work. That it is the very work that we do um, is done as unto the Lord, using the very ability, opportunity, and things that he's given us, that, that the work itself brings glory to him. That the work itself serves other people so in other words part of what we're previewing is when we, when we go to next week I don't have to, to to sort of bring a a Christian view to the workplace I don't have to think about well maybe I can start a bible study during lunch that's a good thing to do and why don't you um, or, or how can I meet somebody and hopefully one day uh, share the gospel with them. That is a good thing to do as well. But um, but our Christian presence in the workplace is not limited to just those kinds of things, but how we do our very work. The quality with which we do it, uh, the virtue and ethics with which we do it, the joy and gratitude with which we do it, the humility toward others with which we do it, um, and all for the glory of God for which we do it. All of that brings work into a whole different view and offers us a whole different um, possibility of joy and fulfillment. I want to close this morning by praying a prayer together and it really kind of touches upon one of the elements I mentioned earlier just about our work being service, particularly service to others and the necessity of every person and the contribution that they make. This is, I find, to be a beautiful prayer. It comes out of the Uh, Book of Common Prayer, Anglican Book of Common Prayer. It's kind of the bedtime, one of the bedtime prayers. It's a nighttime, so-called, it's a nighttime uh, prayer service at the close of the day. And one of the concluding prayers um, is this, Uh, two screens. If you'll pray this together with me. Oh God. Your unfailing providence sustains the world we live in and the life we live. Watch over those both night and day who work while others sleep and grant that we may never forget that our common life depends upon each other's toil. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And may he... Charge us and inspire us afresh with contributing our toil to the common good of other people and to the glory of God. More on that next week. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, once again, we thank you for speaking into our world what we would not know without a clear word of truth. So Lord, we just pray you would help us to align our hearts, our minds, our lives to these truths about what, uh, uh, all of what we do being brought under your Lordship, done for your glory, done for the good of other people. And Lord, we pray that our faithfulness in doing so Uh, would be a powerful testimony of your love and grace and power um, that is still at work and still available to all who would come to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.